カエルピョコピョコミピョコピョコ合わせてピョコピョコムピョコピョコ You're listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Box. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. I'm Yuri Tanaka. We are going to look at hot water, beetles, and graphene. Joining us today is Howard Kunstler to talk about the long emergency. In addition, you can find out what Kwashi Orkor is. Stay tuned for all of this, plus the world famous question of the week, right here at Berkeley Box. Next stop is Berkeley Grok. Welcome back to Berkeley Grok's. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm in a great mood today. <laughs> I feel like I'm free and unencumbered.、Right. Like the world is my oyster. Wow. So,、uh, did you drink the Kool Aid? <laughs> no, but I had some bad oyster, oddly enough.、So. That's not good. If you weren't encumbered by any problems with insulin, now it seems we have a super solution. I thought we've always had a solution, and that's just inject insulin. <laughs> but now you can breathe it in. Inhalable. Inhalable. Wow. Non invasive. Insulin is certainly on the list of things I'd like to inhale. <laughs> Control your sugar there, huh? First, I would inhale a lot of sugar, then I would inhale the insulin. Yeah, actually, that's what we need, huh? If、yeah. we inhale the sugar, then we.、Uh, We'd have candied lungs. <laughs> I want mine to be caramel. <laughs> But this is actually in the phase three clinical trials right now. If everything goes right, it should be available on the market very soon. So it actually passes through the barrier at the lung interface? Uh huh. I imagine it's a quicker dissolve and you don't have to inject yourself. So that's、right. the advantages. Well, speaking of sugars, I was reading the bottle to some of the s i g n of stuff I use, and it actually contains microcrystalline cellulose in this matrix. So there is a little bit of sugar already that you're inhaling there. Cool. <laughs> This is marketed by our favorite drug company, Pfizer. As long as we're talking about aerosols, we can talk about mist. Yes. You mean the computer game? That's a pretty cool game. I actually never played it, but I just heard about it. All right. Well, in fact, I'm talking about water vapor in fogs. I like fog. So do I, and apparently so do beetles. A particular type of beetle called the Stenocara beetle.、Uh-huh. It turns out this beetle lives in the Namib Desert in one of the driest places on Earth, located on the southwest coast of Africa. And it has a very interesting trait in which it's able to actually extract the water from the fog. It has an interesting surface on its outer shell,、uh-huh. which is composed of hydrophobic ridges. And so that captures the water and then it drains it down to its mouth with like little type of capillary action. Okay, uh, a uh, capillary action, huh? Right. So, researchers have been very interested in this because they want to try and extract, for example, water in very dry climates. Or,、uh-huh. And what they've done is they've taken a cue from this beetle and designed a material that is similar to the beetle's outer shell. What about just genetically engineering people to breathe in the water? Maybe that's down the line a little bit, but scientists are sometimes lazy and they take the easy way out. <laughs> but apparently, this new material is much more efficient than current mist catching nets,、uh, in、okay. which most of the water just passes through uncaptured.、Uh-huh. Apparently, a real potential to save people's lives, according to one Oxford University researcher named Andrew Parker. So, this is actually very fascinating work. It was done by a material scientist, Michael Rubner, and chemical engineer Robert Cohen, colleagues at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT.
So it looks like there might be another form of carbon. Besides graphite. Besides graphite. Besides diamond. Besides diamond. Besides buckyballs. Besides buckyballs. Wow, how many can there possibly be? Who knows, but they all have a very interesting electronic property, in fact. And what is this form? So I guess analogous to the buckyballs, we have the nanotubes, mm -hmm. which are sheets of carbon that form tubes or somehow wrap themselves in some sort of casserole-type. Tube-like structure. Tube-like structure. A new one called graphene is actually obtained by graphite that has been pyrolytically treated. And by peeling off the layers, you get this more or less planar allotrope of carbon in which you can manipulate its electronic properties very easily. Hmm. Basically just very thin sheets. Yeah. It's able to transport electrons with almost no energy dissipation. Almost like a superconductor. More or less. And if you don't it the way you like it. You could either become an insulator or it could be a semiconductor. And so there's a lot of promise that this material could be used in the next generation of uh, electronics, which you could potentially place the silicon-based technology we have right now. If we need anything now, it's faster computers. I you mean, know, my iPod, it doesn't have enough memory. <laughs> need like a couple of terabytes, I think. Yeah. This is work carried out by Walt Deheer at the Georgia Institute of Technology. It's one of their main goals right now is to develop newer methods of fabricating graphene more consistently. ありがとうございました this is final stop. Make sure bring all your belongings. Oh, looks like we're at the end of the line here. <laughs> <laughs> Again, huh? Uh, for another week, but uh, at least there's next week, which will be good. <laughs> so how about uh, hotspots? I don't think I have any myself, but maybe the sun does. So does the Earth. The Earth? Yes. One of the hottest spots yet known on the ocean floor is 470 degrees centigrade hydrothermal vent. Do they have external files there too? That's not clear yet, but it has a very different chemistry from uh, other type of hydrothermal vents that have been found. For example, huh. much less hydrogen sulfide. So if it's hotter, that means maybe it comes from a deeper part of the core. Is that right? This is actually in a part of ocean, Mid-Atlantic Ridge, where the African and South African continental planers are only moving apart at a very slow rate of about 3.2 centimeters per year. And the accepted wisdom is that you get most of the hottest activity at places where the plates are moving faster. Right. So it's kind of unclear why you're getting mm. this much energy out of the place. According to one researcher, Colin Davey, he says that the discovery of this hot pot is going to change a lot of people's thinking because the accepted wisdom must just be wrong. Mm. <laughs> it's only recently that the expedition leader, Andrea Kuczynski, of the International University in Bremen, Germany, and her team uh, have been able to measure the temperature here. They right. found it quite a while ago, right. but they weren't able to measure it until recently. And it appears to be the hottest one thus far. Global warming, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Even deep in the ocean's bed. If you like the hot spots, is the place to party. Open your salsa, man. <laughs> published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Laura Mello and Dom Bruce joins us to talk about computing in a developing world.
back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, Thomas Friedman, best-selling author at the New York Times, says that the world is flat. The barriers between people and culture are disappearing as transportation and information technology improve. Yet, two billion people still have no access to reliable power or information. Well, one company is trying to change that. Invenio, based here in San Francisco, has developed a solution for rural regions around the world by using off-the-shelf computing parts. Laura Mello joins us. So, Laura, first of all, could you tell us what Invenio is about and how it got started? Basically, the company was founded by three people, Kristen Peterson, Mark Summer, and Bob Marsh. And for the first six months, they were busy working on the technology and the idea behind how to get the technology out there. Then they brought me in to help them create a business around that or an enterprise around that. Invenio is, um, it was started in September of 2004, and we created a solution to take communications out to areas beyond the power grid as well as the telecommunications infrastructure as it exists today. And that's what we do. So we, we pull together components to create the solution. We ensure that they're sustainable, that the solution can scale, and that it's appropriate technology for the environment. For example, it must be low power consumption and ruggedized to protect it from the elements and the dust. Could you tell us perhaps the philosophy behind uh, this uh, nonprofit organization? Yes. Invenio was founded to bring communications technology to people in environments who have no access to it. Our philosophy is that communications is just such a powerful tool in terms of connecting people's lives and uh, giving them the opportunity and the means to make improvements either through education or through business that we wanted to bring that technology out to people who didn't have access to it. According to the numbers from the World Bank, from 2004, there are roughly 2 billion people that don't have access to electricity in the world. And so without electricity, it's very difficult to provide them with communications. And what exactly do you mean by the appropriate technology? In some areas, there is access to the power grid, but it's inconsistent, so battery backup is a requirement if communications is going to be ongoing. Solar is a great technology to use in sunny environments, but it's difficult in environments where you're in a rainforest, for example, where the treetops are are very high and it's very dense, then an alternate, either micro-hydro, can be an alternate source of power. Uh, There's also wind, but that requires a location that's got fairly consistent wind. So I noticed in one of the demos you'd actually demonstrated a uh, bicycle-powered system. Uh, Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. We use the bicycle power in the event of a backup. So if it's monsoon season and there's three or four days of no sunlight, you can use it as a backup. Or if you've got some heavy computing requirements 
in a, a day that runs into the evening, then you can use the, the bicycle generator as a backup. And the bicycle generator, what it's a bicycle that is connected to a generator that powers a battery, and then the, the system runs off of the battery. For about 15 minutes of pedaling time, you get about an hour of computing time. We actually use Wi-Fi, um, 802.11b right now, to carry the connectivity from uh, the, the point where our hub system is located, which connects to connectivity, either an ISP satellite or uh, a digital phone. And then we carry that connectivity out to the surrounding villages, again, using Wi-Fi. We use high-gain directional antennas and high-power radios to boost the signal so that it can go quite a distance. And could you give us some examples of uh, places that you've installed these systems and what happened some of the more interesting um, developments since? Sure. Our first system actually went into uh, villages in Uganda in the Rowanzori Mountains, and it was in Benio working with another organization on the ground, an aid organization called ActionAid, and the project is community development. So one computer, one in Benio communications station went into each of five villages, and it's connected via Wi-Fi, and the people use it to talk to each other. It's got telephony. It's got a telephone attached to it, and they use it to call each other. They also use it to call the surrounding villages, the, the market towns, to find out where they can get the best prices for their crops, and then they go there and, and sell theirs. They also coordinate with each other so that they can pool their crops and take it to villages where they can get more money for their crops based on volume. Uh, they use it to look up scholarships for their children, and their children are actually quite adept at using it already. It, the system's been in place for just over a year now, and the children use it to look for schools that they would like to attend and apply for the scholarships, as well as send emails to relatives who have moved to cities. In terms of medicine, do you see a huge potential for uh, saving lives here? We don't yet have a solution in place, but we've been talking to a number of medical-oriented organizations to have the system put into remote clinics. The clinics can be then connected to hospitals, and the staff at the clinics can call and speak to doctors. They can, a digital camera can be attached to it. They can take photographs of a patient or an injury and forward that on to a doctor for uh, medical diagnosis or consulting, and they can facilitate the medical activities that way uh, by, by communication. Also, there's, um, it's difficult to get doctors to move out to the remote areas and stay there if they've got families because they feel so isolated. With the addition of a communication system, they've got medical backup from their colleagues. They don't feel so isolated. And um, as 
ICT gets added into the schools, then their children also have the benefit of the communications for learning. If there are people out there who are interested in volunteering or somehow uh, contributing to these developments, uh, who should they contact? They should go to our website. We've got uh, contact information there. They can send an email to info at org, and they will get a reply. And what we are happy to hear from people with projects in countries, we're also happy to hear from people who right now we've got a program that we're starting to develop working with um, IT professionals in these countries so that they can be trained on our system and the technologies and just general IT training in Wi-Fi, in networking, so that they can start to build their business around building um, technology capabilities for the people in their communities. Right now, Invenio is a very young organization, and anyone who is interested in uh, getting involved in a local country to uh, start their own business or to expand their existing IT business, we would be happy to hear from. We would also like to, um, if anyone's interested in providing donations so that more of these projects can happen, we would love to have that as well. Great. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me. And that was Laura Mello from Invenio. Well, with us right now is Don Bruce from TechReach International and Humanet. Uh, they have used some of Invenio's solutions to deploy a wireless system in disaster areas. Uh, Don, thanks for joining us. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about how you've used uh, their solutions? When we deploy into a disaster environment, uh, we want to produce basically a communications envelope around the area using both satellite, wireless, uh, what they call long-haul uh, communication uh, uh, access points to be able to spread the signal across 20, 30 miles of a disaster. Mm -hmm. And using the Invenio tools, which are low power because the uh, availability of, uh, of quality power in almost any of those situations are, is very sketchy. So you need low power systems that are very rugged, that are highly functional and capable, but uh, are not costly so they could be you know, left there uh, to the natives uh, and um, deployed and act as a, as a communication toolkit for the aid workers. So Invenio's relationship is largely our low-cost, ruggedized uh, computer system that can operate in very rugged environments with dust, and low power, etc. And it's very easy to use because of uh, the way they constructed it and Mark Sumner's design and the rest of his team's design principles around their product. I'm just curious, um, has the industry been supportive of these efforts? I mean, would it encroach upon some of their uh, bandwidth? Um, other, the other part of, parts of the computer universe are looking at this marketplace uh, in Intel, AMD, and others trying to find a way to produce products that speak to the needs of the third world community. And I think that they're making headways in that regard. Um, I think Invenio, because of their small size, is able to 
just be a little bit more nimble in putting products together. Um, but I think the other larger entities will be coming forward uh, with products to speak to the needs of third world countries and their power issues, the price points that, are come, that will be coming down, et cetera. So yes, anytime there's an opportunity that you know Darwinian forces will cause uh, other competitors into it. We have two ways that we deploy. One is into an existing and clear uh, disaster zone, like the tsunami is a good example, like Katrina is a good example, like Darfur is a good example. These are places where there's unequivocal human disaster, communications infrastructure is completely gone. In those environments, we wish to deploy uh, and work with the, our colleagues on the ground who are other NGOs, CARE International, World Vision, and folks of that night to help them build communication infrastructure using our tools. Uh, and the other way that we'll be participating is supporting ongoing sustainable ventures, such as agricultural uh, ventures of various other nonprofits in Latin America and elsewhere, who are not experts in telecommunications, but could greatly avail themselves of the leverage of communications to improve the effectiveness of their uh, operations in the field. Uh, but they, they don't quite have the resources or expertise to do that effectively. So we can partner with those ventures as well. Great. Um, so what has been, like, the biggest challenge since you started uh, doing this? Um, well, it's getting awareness and uh, finances together. Um, largely the, the cost of deploying a, uh, an engineer into uh, Banda Achi, for example, is uh, well up around $20,000 just to get them uh, properly outfitted, insured, flown in, hotels, all of the miscellaneous expenses to keep them safe and secure in a hostile environment. So we need to build up our economic war chest to be able to put those people safely uh, into those fields of operation. And that's just getting the resources together, the funders, the philanthropic dollars, to make uh, our war chest uh, viable. Because uh, we don't expect these engineers to do anything more than volunteer their, their, their knowledge and their time, and we'll take care of the rest. So speaking of war chest, um, has there been interest from the military? I mean, it seems like uh, any well, operation um, out there might be... I think uh, the military is exploring relationships with uh, NGOs and other uh, private-public relationships. Um, and because of their security history and their interest in maintaining security, finding an easy method of relating to those organizations has been somewhat difficult. But I think they're working on it. Uh, there's an a, uh, exercise being conducted in San Diego uh, next month called Strong Angel 3. And it's the third uh, demonstration of uh, disaster training where they collaborate between uh, the military and uh, other uh, NGOs in disaster environments. So Strong Angel 3 is uh, their attempt to uh, get that relationship working. But it's a, it's a struggle for the military because it's completely uncharted waters. Most of our members have been are, are veterans of the Katrina disaster and have uh, been deployed in telecommunications. Brent, uh, uh, has been, Brent Chapman is our technical lead at this point, and he and, and Jeff Allen have, are veterans of the Katrina disaster and radio response efforts in those communities. Okay, I guess we are running a little bit out of time here. Um, are, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or uh, the organization? If there are engineers out there 
who um, have such an interest um, get in contact with us. Um, I can also be reached by email. It's D-O-N-L-A-L-D-B-R-U at gmail.com. That's another way of uh, contacting me if you have interest. Uh, one other point I'd like to make is that um, in Vineo and TechReach, as well as Humanonet, are sponsoring a um, what they call a Silicon Valley Sim Day. That's on September 19th. And in that uh, demonstration day, we're going to be demonstrating to philanthropic uh, uh, donors, as well as engineers, the capacities that we're talking about here in uh, the Intuit campus, uh, right, which is right next to Google. Uh, so we're having an all day on September 19th, showing off our wares and uh, talking about uh, the different technologies that we're using, both satellites. Um, and we're going to be showcasing in video and various other technologies that we're using in the field. That's, so that's September 19th. Great. Dr. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks very much. And we were just talking to Laura Mello from Invenio and Don Bruce from TechReach International. Uh, to find out more about their work, you can go to their websites, www.invenio.org and techri.org. And this is Berkeley Grosh to listen to. In a few moments, we'll find out what Kwashi Orkor is. So stay tuned. I guess from last week was... I thought it was small news. <laughs> was it dwarf Dim- news? Dwarf news, diminutive news. Shrinking sizes of solar system news. Yeah, unfortunately, Pluto's being belittled these days. <laughs> Pluto gets no respect. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah, what do these people on the third rock know? <laughs> I don't think Earth should even be claimed a planet at this point. The only planet should be uh, Jupiter, that big red eye. So I don't know where these astronomers get off telling me what to call a planet. I'm from Flagstaff, <laughs> Arizona, by the way. Where they actually discovered it. This is where they discovered Pluto, which is why I'm particularly pissed off. So I am part of the Percival Lowell mob. <laughs> we will find you, astronomers. But I guess there's still hope, actually, because the International Astronomical Union still has not approved it officially. That is correct. I guess this is just a suggestion for what to classify a planet as. And so I guess if there's any concerned Pluto fans out there, they should contact the uh, IAU to let them know. Yeah, send them hate mail. <laughs> send On them... behalf of Pluto. Right. Well, if you have bits of Pluto, even, you could send that to them. <laughs> 
also affected the more recently discovered 10th planet as well. Right. Yeah, so I, I guess weren't there suggestions that to Pluto there's now going to be three other uh, little planets? My, my understanding was it was going to be uh, Pluto, 10th planet, uh, uh-huh. nicknamed Xena, I believe, and then Ceres, I guess, were candidates at that I point. But there might have been others in the Kuiper belt as well. Right. I think their definitions for what a planet is is <laughs> hopelessly flawed, right? Yeah. <laughs> kind of naive. I mean, one of them was like, it has to be roughly spherical. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> the Earth is bulging. Yeah, we're sort of more oblong. <laughs> kind of like one of those weebles. <laughs> Someone uh, made a Photoshop ad of uh, Pluto speaking up for itself and said, uh, if you treat Pluto like an asteroid, we will act like one. It shows it crashing into the Earth. <laughs> Crash on the astronomers who called you a, a planetoid or a dwarf planet, whatever you're called. <laughs> I expect an angry mob to be lynching the IAU headquarters at any moment now, uh, hopefully burning the astronomers in effigy. I mean, astronomers rarely get burned in effigy. I think this is a perfect time for that to happen. Wow. Any publicity is good publicity, right? (laughs) Maybe this is actually a a remarkably well-thought-out plan on their part to actually drum up some publicity (laughs) for the uh, much maligned astronomical profession. We'll find a real killer. Right. (laughs) It was the one-armed man. Pluto, it's a planet in our book. Uh, I don't care what any astronomer tells me, it's a planet. Now, um, Yuri is going to answer the question of the last week. Quashi or core is a symptom of belly become expand from non-nutrition. And Forrest here with this week's question of the week. You know, down here in the south in the lazy summer, we just go out fishing and we catch all kinds of crazy critters. But you know, in the ocean, it's a little harder. Sometimes even though it's so deep, you just don't see no fish. Well, if you know where the deepest part is in the oceans, let us know. You can email us at groxonhotmail.com. You won't win anything, but at least you won't catch a shark. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Crocs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you want to contact us, Berkeley Crocs, email us at uh, grocs at hotmail.com. I'm Yuri Tanaka. And you can also see us on the web at www.grocs.net. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.